Do you know if you were in the, in the sanctuary when I was doing the announcements, I would like to wish you a happy early birthday. It's Tuesday, correct? The 6th. And uh, again, we're celebrating that from 2.30 to 4.30. Also, I did not notice um, that Amy and Ellen are both in here. I'd like to acknowledge them. The last several months, they've been doing children's Sunday school. If you're wondering, no, they didn't stop coming. They've been doing children's Sunday school every week. Uh, during the church service, and I'd like to personally thank you both. I know that's been so helpful and such a blessing, and um, yeah, just so sincerely appreciated. And certainly, we're always looking for people to also help out uh, with the children downstairs. Um, like Doug always says, they're, they're our future, and uh, it's a great way to, to serve and to, to pour into them. And again, so, so sincerely appreciative of Amy and Ellen um, this summer, I mean, it's incredible. Thank you very much. Uh, Carrie had a horrible headache when she woke up this morning, so she stayed home. Considering that she's married to me, I think it's amazing she doesn't have more headaches than she gets. But uh, she was she was not feeling well this morning, um, so definitely prayers appreciated for her. Also, one last thing, forgot to mention this during the announcements for the uh, uh, the waste removal that we have flyers for, that is for Iroquois County residents only, correct, Charles? Iroquois County residents. And so if you don't live here, you could buy a house in Iroquois County. Um, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, I did lose my, uh, I can't find my USB drive, so I don't have my PowerPoint this morning. Um, but John chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, it is said in your word that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Your Son, our Lord, taught I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who points us to you, who makes you known, and who has reconciled us to you. 
May we believe and know the truth of your gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let that be our only source of hope. May we know the saving work of Christ. May we live our lives in gratitude and the knowledge of your gospel. Lord, we continue to pray for greater trust and reliance on you through all of the uncertainties and unknowns of this season. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. Lord, may we trust that you are our refuge and strength. May we be still and know that you are God. And may we worship you for your greatness and goodness. Lord, we do not deserve you. We are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But you are the eternal God who has promised eternal life through your Son. Jesus is the one who makes you known. And it is through him and him alone that we can know you and approach you. And so we humbly come before you in adoration and in a heart of worship to again study your word. Lord, we ask that you bless our time and bless our hearts and minds as we seek to know you and to know the truth through the preaching of your holy word. Lord, on this day, I also would like to pray for President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump as they are recovering from this horrible virus. Lord, I pray all across the nation that people join in praying for them. Lord, I also would like to pray for June a couple days before his 90th birthday. Lord, and again, I thank you so much to what he's meant to this church and the history of this church. Lord, and I pray for your blessings on him and Ruby. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all heard the saying, don't judge a book by its cover. And the point is that we shouldn't judge things merely by outward appearances or what's on the surface level. As people, we have a a tendency to make assumptions about other people. To give an example, there's been vast psychological research into attractiveness. If all you have to know about a person is based on their looks, and you see a beautiful person, like me, (laughs) don't laugh, don't laugh, you should be nodding. If all you have to go on is looks, and you see a beautiful person, you're more likely to assume that that person is also nice or that they're smart or that they're competent when all you have to know about them is their looks. Without any corroborative information to validate that. And it's because if we think one thing that's good about a person, we're likely to make other good associations about them. We take limited information and make larger assumptions. It's the same reason why the lead male actor in movies is usually tall. Unless being short is part of the story of the movie. Even if the actor himself is short, 
They will utilize lifts and shoes, smaller props, smaller door frames, different camera angles to make him look taller than he is. Because we associate height with dominance and power. And that works itself out in the real world. Among Fortune 500 CEOs, the average CEO is two and a half inches taller than the average person. Of the 11 presidents we've had since 1960, only one was shorter than 5'11". And we've only had one president shorter than average height since the late 1890s, William McKinley. We take limited information about people and make larger assumptions. We judge books by the covers. We'll have more on that later on. We're resuming this morning the Gospel of John. And to remind us of where we are in this gospel, Jesus has arrived at the Feast of Booths. And as we've discussed before, the Feast of Booths is an annual Jewish celebration in the fall, which looked back to the time when the Israelites were wandering in the desert. And it was also a celebration of the fall harvest. And it was also meant to look forward to the upcoming year. And as we've talked about the autumn Jewish holidays over the last couple of weeks... This year's Feast of Booths is actually happening currently, started on Friday. But turning back to our passage in John, it's the Feast of Booths, and Jesus is in Jerusalem for the feast. He's teaching in the synagogue, and this is causing a stir among a new audience, as well as the ruling authorities. It's a passage where we'll see themes related to divine authority, the law of Moses, And where we'll revisit a controversy that Jesus has already been involved with in this gospel. We'll look at this passage in three scenes. And with that, we'll jump into our first scene. If you're taking notes, it's misunderstanding Jesus. And verse 14 is where we begin. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. John mentions it's the middle of the feast. Feast of booths lasts seven or eight days. The point isn't so much that it's exactly day four or exactly day five, but that Jesus begins teaching at the temple at some point in the middle of this feast. Verse 15, the crowd responds to Jesus. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? We don't know specifically what Jesus has been teaching, but the crowd is impressed by Jesus' understanding of the scriptures and his teaching of the scriptures. They knew that Jesus had not learned under any of the well-known rabbis of his day, and so they ask how he has acquired this education. For most Jewish boys in Jesus' lifetime, any formal education would have concluded in early adolescence, and then for the vast majority you would go into whatever the profession of your father was. For someone who was especially bright, they might have continued rabbinical training where they learned at the tutelage of a rabbi. This could last 15 years. And having an academic pedigree mattered to the ruling authorities. But Jesus did not have that. There would have been those who discounted Jesus and what he had to say because of that. In his commentary on John, Grant Osborne points out that rabbis in Jesus' day often anchored much of their teaching and theology into what their predecessors had already said. People in academic circles still do this. And this type of elitism certainly is not unique to Jesus' day. 
There are domains today where there's a certain pedigree that's expected. I looked this up. The, of the eight current Supreme Court justices, all eight of them graduated law school from Harvard or Yale. I looked up the chief of operations for the United States Navy, basically the person in charge of the Navy. Of the 32 men who have held that position, all but two went to the United States Naval Academy. There were leading rabbinical figures in Jesus' day. They were the Ivy League. But Jesus hadn't learned from any of them. After the ministry of Jesus, his disciples would also run into this same type of intellectual prejudice. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John appear before a ruling council of the Jewish leaders. And again, we see in Acts 4 the low expectations and assumed lack of knowledge that the leading figures have for John and Peter. Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. In fact, there are still biblical scholars today who look at a book like 2 Peter, which is considered maybe the highest level of Greek in the entire New Testament. And they look at Peter, who we don't think was especially well-educated. And some scholars have this bias where they think, well, Peter couldn't possibly have written 2 Peter. We see Jesus... People try to devalue him based on who his family is. Matthew 13, 53 to 55. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? And really, we see this at the beginning of John's gospel. When the first disciples start following Jesus. Philip is enamored with Jesus, but his brother's not so sure. And he cites his hometown as justification for his prejudice. John 1, 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And here again in our passage, the crowd marvels at Jesus and they question, how is it that a man has learning when he has never studied? I spoke in the beginning about judging a book by its cover. People made all sorts of assumptions about Jesus based on little information throughout his ministry. And we see how people had these low expectations, low assumptions, judging Jesus And it's easy to see where they got it wrong. But so often in the Bible, the things that other people get wrong are also the same things that we have a tendency to get wrong. Because we're also fallen and sinful people. We also come to false conclusions and unfair judgments of people. It can be based on appearance, based on how a person dresses. In a small town where so many of the families are already known, we can make unfair judgments. If a person comes from a good family, assuming good things. If a person comes from not such a good family, we can, I think, unfairly assume negative things about someone. I think it's something that all of us are susceptible to because we don't have perfect knowledge. We're fallible people. But I think it's important to be proactive in showing fairness to people. 
In James 2, the Lord's brother James describes a situation in the assembly where the Christians are showing partiality and bias. James 2.1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And James goes on to describe a situation where two types of people come to the church. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The point is that we do have a tendency as sinful and fallen people to make such judgments. But that that is sinful. And it's actually an idea to which Jesus will refer at the end of our section that we're in in John this morning. John 7.24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Again, it's important to know the temptation to judge a book by its cover. But as Christians, it's important to actively work against that. Because it's an easy trap that all of us can fall into. And so that's our first scene, how the world misunderstands Jesus. We come to a second scene, the God Jesus points to. The crowd questions Jesus. It's worth pointing out that there's nothing wrong with them wanting to know where Jesus' ideas come from. But it's that the problem is that the ruling authorities are putting too much stock into their man-made systems as the authenticator. They're counting on their own assumptions and preconceived notions about what good biblical teaching is, what the Messiah should be like, instead of in the scriptures. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus responds. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will make known whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus' teaching comes from the ultimate source. Jesus has come with a divine message. Again, in the rabbinical tradition, teachings were often looked at in light of historical precedent. But what if the initial teachings or historical precedents were wrong or flawed? It was still ultimately heavily reliant on the teachings of men. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. As Jesus has done throughout the gospel, he confronts the audience and us, the reader, with a bold claim. That if you truly desire to know the will of God, you will know that Jesus' teaching is from God. But more simply, to know God is to know Jesus. Let's consider that for a minute. And let's look at that statement in our own lives. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. It's both an ethical and a theological statement. If you desire to do God's will, to live out God's will, that person will be able to recognize whether or not Jesus' teaching is merely opinion or whether it's of divine authority. But how? Because of the gospel. Let's work through the gospel and understanding Jesus' statements, beginning with sin. 
Romans 3 has one of the great summaries in the whole Bible of the human condition. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It is the natural disposition of fallen humanity to not desire God or the things of God. It is through the regenerative effect of the gospel that a person has a desire for the will of God. Titus 3, 4-6. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So, our desire for God is not something that we simply decide to have. But it is a result of regeneration whereby we are given God's spirit. Second Corinthians 2. Paul talks about the natural man and the spiritual man. Second Corinthians 2 beginning in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are not spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So it is not we ourselves who desire the truth of God, but it is God working in us through his spirit. And so it is true that the desire to know the will of God... Through that, we are necessarily led to the affirmation of who Jesus is. A desire for the will of God leads us to the truth of God and to Jesus who himself is truth. But that's only part of the equation. Because anyone could make the statement that Jesus made. In fact, others have, as we've discussed before. But to further authenticate that Jesus himself is the one uniquely sent from God... We have the life and ministry of Jesus. It's not merely big talk, but that Jesus' life and ministry are unimpeachable through his righteousness, through his teachings. His miracles speak to his divinely appointed ministry. And his death and resurrection point us to the truth of his gospel, that he died and rose. And we who are dead in sin and believe in him, have the promise of eternal life. And so we're left with the overarching truth that a desire to follow the will of God will always lead us to the Son of God. Given the spiritual aspect of faith, we cannot truly seek God and be led in the wrong direction. Certainly, you might be tempted to ask, well, then why are there so many other religions? Because men love darkness rather than they love the light. As Paul warned Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The world likes to earn righteousness and salvation on its own terms. 
But the Bible constantly points us to the reality that we cannot. Nearly every other religion works on a scale of righteousness and sins. But it is through the gospel that we have the message of grace. Seeking the will of God leads to Christ. To attempt to follow any other way is idolatry. As Hebrews 11 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Continuing in our passage, verse 18, Jesus says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus points again to the authority and glory of God. And Jesus himself is glorious. He is perfect. He is divine. Think of the things that the world applauds and celebrates. We create awards for ourselves. People who have enough prestige and wealth build monuments to themselves, pay for schools or buildings to be named after themselves. The world loves to bring itself glory. Yet Jesus walks on the earth to point to the glory of God. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think that's a powerful example for us, to live humbly, to live to bring glory to God, to seek to bring glory to God in every domain of our lives. As spouses and parents and grandparents and people's children and brothers and sisters, as neighbors and co-workers, as friends, as people who go to church together and serve in the church together, and all of that to bring glory to God. Everything we do should be meant to point to the glory of God. The great Baroque composer Johann Sebastian Bach used to sign the initials SDG onto his compositions. It stood for the Latin phrase, sole deo gloria, glory to God alone. And that should be the heart of everything that we do in our lives, for the glory of God. In the Westminster Catechism, it asks, what is the chief end of man? And the response is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul sums it up. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Jesus lived a perfect life. He did not tell people he was glorious. He displayed his glory through his signs. He didn't just primarily walk around telling people he was perfect. He showed his perfection through a perfect and righteous life. And so we have Jesus who is glorious, who is righteous, who is perfect, the one in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Yet he came into the world and was submissive to God and followed the will of God. We're just people. Again, finite, frail, fallen people. And we were created to bring glory to God, not to glorify ourselves or to glorify men. Because we're not glorious. And so we see how the world understands Jesus and the God that Jesus points to. And we come to a third scene. 
which is the law Jesus fulfills. Jesus, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 19, Jesus says that these people have the law of the Old Testament, yet that none of them keeps it. I think that there are layers of meaning to that statement. None of you keeps the law. First, it's true that no one keeps the law in the sense that nobody keeps it perfectly because everyone is sinful except Jesus. So it's true on that level. I think that's obviously the most obvious way to read it. Secondly, we see the failure of the overseers of the law and the fact that they're seeking to kill Jesus. For the experts in the law, the religious leaders, at the beginning of John chapter 7, it's already informed us that they sought to kill Jesus. Despite the fact that Jesus is righteous, he never sinned, he's broken no laws, he certainly never committed a capital offense, yet they would plot against Jesus, they would bring false accusations and trumped up charges against him. That was a violation of the law too. And it's also true on a third level, where Jesus talks of them, their disobedience to the law. But the prophets point to Jesus. Jesus asks, has not Moses given you the law? Having the law was a great source of pride for the Jewish people. But if their ruling authorities truly understood the law, they would know to whom it pointed. Jesus has already told a group of Jewish leaders in chapter 5. In that chapter, Jesus has given a lengthy address in the aftermath of healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. And he says to the leaders, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? To truly know God is to know Jesus. I've thrown a lot at you guys. In chapter 5, Jesus was also at the temple in Jerusalem speaking to a group. It seems reasonable that not everyone listening to him in our current section in chapter 7 was in the original group in chapter 5. It was months, if not a year before. So some people are totally confused by what Jesus has just said. They think he's crazy. In verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. But as we see many other times in this gospel, Jesus responds to a question by not answering it. Jesus has talked about the plot to kill him. But why is there a plot to kill him? Yes, we saw a couple weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 7. John 7, 1 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But why were they seeking to kill him? The origin of the Jewish leaders seeking to kill Jesus started in chapter 5. It's in the wake of Jesus healing the paralyzed man on the Sabbath. This is looked at as being a violation of the Sabbath. 
Jesus responds that his father is working, and so is he. And it is that incident to which Jesus refers when he responds to the crowd in verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. And the one work was the healing on the Sabbath. And that becomes evident as Jesus continues speaking. Verse 22 and 23. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So let's tie that all together. Jesus goes directly to the heart of the Sabbath. And this ties into what he's just been saying to the Pharisees regarding the law of Moses and the fact that they don't keep it. They don't truly understand the law. They don't truly understand the Old Testament. Their failure to recognize Jesus shows that. And their desire to kill Jesus shows that. And so Jesus makes a comparison between circumcision and the Sabbath. Both of these integral elements of Judaism. Both of which were Judaic practices which actually predated the time of Moses. We see the Sabbath in creation. And we see the observance of the Sabbath commanded prior to the Ten Commandments. And we see circumcision given to Abraham. But then you also have both of them reiterated in the law of Moses. Circumcision and the Sabbath. Now, Abraham was commanded that all of his offspring must be circumcised on the eighth day after they're born. But what about when the eighth day is the Sabbath? They still circumcised. And as Jesus says in verse 23, that was not a violation of the law. And so Jesus asks the religious leaders, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? You can circumcise a baby on the Sabbath, but you can't heal a man? Leon Morris adds a helpful note. Jesus is not undermining the Sabbath. He's not criticizing the Sabbath. He's not liberalizing the Sabbath. He's pointing them to the heart of the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders could see the rationale to circumcise a baby even on the Sabbath, but they couldn't see the justification for healing someone. The law is not arbitrary. The law is not just a list of commands for the sake of commands. The law points to God, points to holiness, points to life. Now, circumcision had vast religious significance for the Jewish people. It was profoundly meaningful. It was a God-given symbol of the covenant. And yet Jesus talks of healing the entire person. That act of love and grace has more to do with the heart of the law and the heart of the Old Testament than the unnecessary rigidity of the ruling authorities. And so at the end of our passage, Jesus says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They needed to hear that because they weren't doing that. And it's because they were not judging with proper judgment 
that they got both Jesus wrong and the law wrong. They got God wrong. And so they didn't understand his law or what it pointed to. They had a worldly perspective, not a heavenly perspective. They had a rigid view of the law, not a loving and gracious view of the law. They had man-made opinions about the Messiah. And so they missed the Messiah when he was right in front of them. They weren't judging based on truth. They didn't truly know God, and so they couldn't understand the one God sent. They didn't truly know the heart of the law, and so they could not appreciate the heart of God or what God desired. Jesus pointed to a greater revelation from God, a greater fulfillment of the law, and the true understanding of the law. And what this passage ultimately teaches is that we cannot get Jesus wrong and God right. Because God's word points to Jesus, his will was to send Jesus, his righteousness is lived out through Jesus, his wrath is absorbed by Jesus, and his creation is redeemed by Jesus, all to the glory of God and for the salvation of all who believe in the gospel. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son. Lord, let us see the world and life from a heavenly perspective as you desire us to. Lord, we are sinful people. May we be humbled. May we seek your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.